Good morning, North Shore. All right, getting the energy going. You ready for this? I'm excited. I have an announcement that will feel like it's way too early, but hopefully you'll see it's important. And that announcement is this, is in 2021, you heard that correctly, we will be going to Israel again. If you have not been to Israel as a Christian, you have to. You have to. Uh, I got the pleasure to go last year uh, and just to walk in the footsteps of Jesus is something that I think the Christian life needs to do. It will blow your mind and it just edifies your heart. So um, the reason I'm telling you now is a year out, which will be after the first year, January, we get together and start talking about this trip. But this is an amazing time because we're all doing the gift thing and all that. Because, and see, you older people are going to understand this. You younger people won't get this. It's called layaway, okay? <laughs> you know, see the old people laugh, young people are like, what? When I was a kid, how you got gifts, you opened this big catalog and you started putting money down on it for a while and say, hey, it's coming, it's coming, you had to wait. You know, it's called Sears, okay? It's a whole new store you haven't heard of, an old store. But the point being is we have a layaway plan, right? You can begin to put money away for this trip so that it doesn't hit you in a year and a half too hard. But anyway, I want to encourage you, if you want to know more about it, seek me out, email the church, stop by Connection Central, get you on an email list that doesn't commit you. It just says, hey, I'm interested in this trip. Yeah, and one thing and, and I've seen is really cool, really cool, as I watch families go, parents take their kids, and it's amazing to have them experience that together. So anyway, strongly, strongly encourage that. Okay, if you need a Bible, shoot your hands up. Uh, the ushers will come, get a Bible to you. Turn it to 1 Samuel when you get there. We are going to continue our series called Unlikely. And we started this series saying, hey, there's an unlikely movement of God that he does. It doesn't seem really likely that's going to happen. And we looked at our own area of Seattle. 67% of the people in this great, greater Seattle area say they do not identify as Christians. That means they don't know Jesus. 70% of people do not know Jesus. And we believe that he is the only way to heaven in relation with him for eternity. So it is critical, vital, that they understand and know who Jesus is. And God has planted us here. And that seems really unlikely. When I get up and I look in the mirror, it's like, you're going to use me to go reach a place that 70% of people don't know Jesus. That seems very, very unlikely, right? And I think all of us uh, feel that space. So we've been walking through this, and God, you have planted us here. There's a mission that you have for us here, and we feel unlikely. What say you, Lord? And he has a lot to say, because if you open the pages of Scripture, most everybody's very, very unlikely. And God has a work to do there. So uh, we're going to continue as uh, God using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And I'm excited about what God has in store for the future of North Shore. Because in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, they're going to know about Jesus. Uh, right? And we're going to go together. And it's going to feel unlikely. But in his name, it will be likely. So one thing as we look at our text today, well, we're going to look at bad vision corrected to God's vision. Okay, bad vision corrected to God's, God's vision. And my aging eyes have a better understanding of bad vision. You'll probably notice me, I'm trying to, this whole glasses thing, it's new to me, okay? I used to be a proud possessor of 2015 vision. They told me I could be an airline pilot, everything. When someone would drop something on the floor, guess who could find it? Eagle eye. 
Well, uh, a few years ago uh, at restaurants, all of a sudden that menu got hard to read. You know what I mean? Something, okay, and I'd sit there and I was like, oh, I know, see, I see these reading glasses, right? Um, and so like, uh-oh. Luckily, I love cheeseburgers, and everybody serves them. And no matter what restaurant here, and they've got, even in the back page, it's a, there's a cheeseburger somewhere, right? So I just say cheeseburger, right? And, and that was fine, you know, because I like cheeseburgers. But every once in a while, people be eating steak and lobster at kind of a nice restaurant, and guess what the, uh, the guy with bad vision ordered? Cheeseburgers. They're like, what are you, five? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, so it made some, some dinners that were supposed to be pretty special and unique not so good. But where it's just more serious is when we use bad vision to evaluate ourselves or other people for the potential of spiritual impact that they can make. And so that's what we're going to do with our text in 1 Samuel 16. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. And I pray today as we're going to look at bad vision corrected to God's vision where we can see what seems unlikely, that it's so likely by the power of God that you would correct our vision today in that manner. So guide us, move us, shape us by your power today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little backdrop as we look at this bad vision corrected to God's vision is uh, in 1 Samuel 8, we see the judge Samuel, who is also a prophet, okay, with me. Because back in this time in ancient Israel, how Israel was led, was led by God, but he used people called judges and for kind of the tribal clan existence they had. And he used them to point to God, to guide him into maybe military, um, you know, to defend the, 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 in the wars and things of that nature. So he used these judges, and some of the judges are people who are either prophets or kind of pastor-like. Well, Samuel is one of those, okay? He's a judge, and in in fact, he's the last judge because Israel is going to move into the monarchy. They're going to have their first king here. So Samuel is the judge, and the people come in 1 Samuel 8 and say, um, hey, we want to be like everybody else. We have a request for you. We want a king. We don't want a judge. We don't want a prophet anymore. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be just like them. That would be like you coming up and say, hey, Scott, yeah, we want a new pastor. <laughs> okay, so Samuel gets like, we want you out of a job, Samuel, is what they say. It's like, okay, so he goes to God, you know, a little worked up, as you'd expect. And God says, Samuel, they're not choosing against you. They're choosing against me. Because in their system, God is the focus. That's who is leading them, not a judge not a prophet. And he says, give them what they want. So he comes, uh, Samuel finds somebody by the name of Saul. And I have to read this. And this is in 1 Samuel 9. Kish, a man of wealth. Okay, so this Saul is going to be a rich guy's kid. Okay, we know the story, right? And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And boy, when they got a look at Saul, 1 Samuel 10, they shouted, long live the king. This is him. Look at this resume of this king. Can you believe we got this guy? Really? We got Saul? Yeah, yeah, you got Saul. And they were excited. And they evaluated him based on his resume. Look how big he is. Look how handsome he is. Look how strong he is. Man, he towers over everybody. He's a military giant. That's our guy. He will lead us. But there's a problem. And we still see that problem in churches today. I, and all through my career, I've seen it. Okay. I see whether it's selecting uh, ministry leaders or pastors, everybody looks at the resume. Boy, let me, what school did they go to? How smart are they? How well can they speak? Really, how good do they look? Do they have charisma? That's him. That's them. We want them. And there is nothing wrong with resumes, just so you know, okay? And all of those things where the problem is, when it's not attached to something deeper. That's the problem. 
Okay? When that becomes the first thing that you see, this bad vision of saying, that's it, that's it. And that was their problem. We want to be just like everybody else. Give us that. And it's not attached to something deeper. And I've watched the ministries select that way, and I've watched churches do that, and there is a constant in all of them over time. As you watch the ethos, the heart of that church begin to deteriorate, and they lose their love for Jesus, and they become just a religious organization. It starts to crumble. You start seeing the ministry fall apart. So why? They got the most amazing leader. Um, I've watched places with a resume that make your head spin. And then there is no doubt God's going to do something incredible. Look at that resume. Only to watch the heart fade from, I can't tell you the place, but the place, okay? I've seen it. I've watched it. And that's their problem. They have bad vision. And God says, okay, I'm willing to correct that to my vision. And that's what's happening in 1 Samuel 16. So let's jump in. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 16, we see God's vision here. The rejection. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So the first thing that just jumps out to me is Samuel's grieving. He is broke. And I call this point in my notes, the pastor's heart. As soon as I saw that, it just made me stop because I saw myself so far into that. It's like, oh, I get that. I understand that. I relate to that. Uh, so this is my third church that I've worked in in my 25-year career, okay? A little town in eastern Washington, Colville, if you know Colville. No, I heard a yes, thank you, I love you. Okay, that's one of you, and that's it, right? No one else knows about Colville. It's kind of true. Though I met someone from Colville here one time. That So it's this little logging town in eastern Washington where I was born and raised and ended up my first ministry. They called me to be their youth pastor. And then I went to Orcas Island. Those places are nothing alike, just so you know, okay? I grew up a whole lot there. And I was there, but Orcas Island is, is small. It's little. A lot there. And then five and a half years ago, I came here, okay? And so in those towns, what you find out, when something goes wrong in the church, there's something, a, a drift, there's a broken relationship, it absolutely crushes you. I mean, these eyes have cried more tears. There's been more sleepless nights than I could tell you uh, of just my friends and my family. Um, you know, something's off, something's wrong. Someone has left the church. And I was told when I came here, hey, get ready. You have to replace 200 people a year in this church. And that's all churches this size, not just North Shore. Just to hold balance. I thought, what? 200 a year? I'm going to meet psychiatric care, you know. Uh, so if you see me, probably you might have to put me in an institute. It'll crush me because I believe church, much like Samuel, is family. Nothing short of that. Our hearts are called together. They're entwined in the Lord Jesus Christ to be on a mission together. And there's nothing short of that. And I hope you weep over me and I'll weep over you and we'll do this. And that's what's happened with Samuel. His heart as a pastor is broke. Because Israel, because when they got Saul as king, oh, it started off good at first. But boy, it started falling apart. And Samuel picked Saul. He discipled him. So the person he discipled, he is broke because he has drifted afar. Because what God said next is he rejected him. He rejected him. And why did he reject him? As I said, it started off great. It was amazing when he selected king. They got what they wanted. But something was revealed. And an author I read called it this. What was revealed and what was rejected was Samuel's religious heart. He had an appearance of God. He understood it, man. God did great things through him early on. But over time, he drifted, and a religious heart set in. So he was not obedient anymore. He didn't listen to God. He did things his own way. He wouldn't wait on the Lord, and the country started falling apart. And, man, this is something I look in the mirror, and I get scared of. Because I've been walking with the Lord now for a lot of years, measured in decades now. And... I know how to play the game. I know how to drive into this place 
and have a heart that's just not tuned into Jesus and you wouldn't have a clue because I know the buzzwords. I know how to dress it. My wife dresses me, but you know, um, um, so, so, you know, that's yeah, true, right? Um, so I, I know how to play the game. Being a Christian, acting like a Christian is routine. I don't cuss. I don't swear anymore. I don't, you know, these, these things, I hate to say it, my fangs are God of my rebellious youth. I go to bed at 930 at night. It's crazy, right? It, isn't it nuts? You know, it's all this stuff. And that's my afraid. The longer I am in the faith, the easier it is to let a religious heart start floating up. And all of a sudden, it's about the moral code and what's happening in the United States. And we've got to get this right. We've got to fight this. We've got to fight this. And all those things are important. Okay? But what's more important, are they attached to a heart, not a religious heart? And what God says here is, I reject that. Because we see in Saul, he cannot use that. You with me? He can't use it. That's what's happening here. So Saul is rejected because of his religious heart. But God is going to tune these eyes up so that they can see what God's chosen king looks like. So he's going to do the realignment here in second part of verse 1 through verse 5. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse. For I have provided for myself a king among the sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So what's going on here is God says, I've rejected Saul, Samuel. Now here's our plan. You're going to go down to Bethlehem, and you're going to find Jesse, and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. Samuel says, I mentored Saul. He's a bad dude, and he's a little nuts right now. Um, I'm scared. I'm terrified. He says, okay, well, here's the plan. We're going we're to come in a little, not sneaky. What's, there's a, there's a, probably a better word, but we'll go sneaky, okay? Uh, we're going to come in low, um, and we're going to do a good work. And I'm going to reach in, and I'm going to tune your hearts up so that you know what I'm doing. So he takes them down there, and basically what they do, he says, go down there, and I want you to have a church service. I'm going to tune your heart. I'm going to tune you in to what my vision is. I'm going to realign it to me. And it's going to come in a way of consecrating yourselves and a sacrifice of coming together. And that's where they would come and they would get themselves all ready, how they dressed, their hearts. They'd you know, go through a, a purification and they'd come into the presence of the sacrifice and they would tune into what God has to say. And I call it, that's church. Here's my hope for you. When you come here, my prayer is you do not come here because you always come here. That you don't come here because it's routine. I pray you come here to have your lives changed each and every week. That it's no small thing. That you don't think, oh, I'm just going to go sing a couple songs, feel good, maybe see a friend or two I might know. Um, no, I pray you come here to have your lives changed because that's what God wants. In no subtle way, he wants to come in here. He wants to reach deep into your lives and tweak your sight so that you can see this world, your family, yourselves, your neighbor, this entire world through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's who We want gospel vision. And we get it when we gather in the name of Jesus. Where else will you go and spend an hour and 15 minutes, depending how long I talk um, or more, focused on Jesus Christ? Where else? Where else will over a thousand people come together in the name of Jesus? Where will that happen? 
I saw a teacher from the academy just now. Okay, there's another place too, right? School, right? But most of us, let's go with it. So, so the illustration stands. Most of us, nowhere. Where will you go where I make a promise to you that I'm going to love you and support you and you're going to do the same thing to me? We're family. Nowhere. That's why church is important. It's essential. It's vital and critical because God changes hearts when we gather in his name. And then when our heart is changed, our vision changes. Right? And that's what's happened. He has realigned them to his vision. Let's keep going here. So here's the requirement. So when he has God's eyes, we have to see what is the requirement. Starting at verse 6. When they came, they looked on Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. I want you to really grab this, okay? If there's a heart of what we're getting at, this verse is it. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearances or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. I mean, I'm just laughing as I'm reading scripture. This is like some sort of catwalk, right, for potential kings. Everyone's into this. Their eyes are chains are fired up. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So what's going on here? God has changed them. Now, right at first, we see Samuel kind of take a glance, if you would, at Jesse's oldest son. Because that's the obvious choice. Yeah, I know you already told me, Lord, that it's coming from Jesse, one of his sons. Here is the oldest son, okay? And in the Jewish culture, is the oldest son that got the inheritance, would take on the family name and household and lead. So it would make sense that it would be Jesse's oldest son. So he kind of glances there and says, well, this must be him. Because they're kind of, you know, hanging out in church. Who's the guy? Who is he? Who is he? Um, and that's what God teaches his valuable message here. He says, let me tell you the tuning we're going to do here. Man looks at the outward appearance, the resume, right, of King Saul. But God doesn't look at that. See, we look at the outward appearances and we're so impressed with what the world calls quality. And we want that, these big resumes, these, you know, celebrity is this powerful thing in our culture. If you can act, guess what? Then you have a right to talk about politics. <laughs> is it crazy? It's like, man, you're telling me all about politics? Weren't you a Disney star last year? What's up, you know? Uh, uh, but boy, if you have celebrity, you get a voice in our culture, right? Everybody wants them in fame. I had a heartbreaking experience. I mean, still, when I was thinking about this, sharing it with you, it crushed me still to date. And it was years ago at my first church I was an employee of, um, my mother-in-law uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So my church did something good. They said, hey, this Easter, don't come. So you see on staff, your pastor, you can't meet, miss Easter, right? Um, but for that reason, they said, go be with your family. So we went out to Keller, Washington. I don't think you'll find it on a map. Um, my wife is a Native American, a Colville Indian, and her family lives on the Colville Indian Reservation, okay? And, um, and so we went there to visit them to Keller, and it is a town. You, know, you have to see deep. I don't think Google knows it. Okay? It's basically a gas station and a few people. Um, it's kind of true. Uh, but there is a, a, two churches, a Catholic church and an evangelical community church. So Easter, we're going to go to the church. For us, at our church, boy, on Easter, boy, you put a tie on, you got a suit on, you're looking good, right? Everybody, all the girls, new dresses and all these things. So we are looking sharp. Uh, so we go to church, walk into this reservation church. And I say that I love the reservation and the native people. I mean, they're they're, they're my people. I love them. We walk in there, and it's a reservation church, and people aren't dressed like that. There's one other white guy in the place, and that's the pastor and me, right? And so we do Easter. It's beautiful, wonderful, and this is where it just turns, where my heart sinks. So we had to leave early, wanted to go be with family uh, for Easter. So we jumped in the car, and, and our family doesn't attend church, just so you know for that. And so we're there, and they're 
back at their house. So we jumped in the car, getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden, I got a boom, boom on the car. I was like, oh, what was that? Freaked me out. Look at my shoulder. It's the pastor. He ran out to the parking lot. He's all disheveled, uh, pounding on the car. So I rolled the window down. Did yes? <laughs> I mean, what did he say? Um, I should have gave more. I knew it. No, I know. But um, uh, he says, uh, he goes, hi, I'm Pastor. Hi, I'm Scott. Hi. Uh, he says, hey, you want to start a church in Lake Ellen? You could be the pastor. I, I'm not exactly, that is exactly, there's no filler words. There's no conversation led up to it. That was it. I was like, uh, I'm happy. I don't know what he's saying. Like, um, I said, well, I'm not even sure what I said. You guys might remember, fam. I know what I said. Somehow we got out. But as I backed up and drove up, my heart sank. Because you know what he saw? He saw white skin, a tie, and a suit. And he attributed that to some sort of spirituality. I said, what are you doing? You know, because it was on what God or man sees. He saw the outward appearance. He thought, oh, that must be. He had no idea if I loved Jesus if I was a good man, I mean, like many people, man, I could have been drugged there to church by my wife that Sunday, right? It, man, it, he had no clue if it had anything to do with my heart. And unfortunately, we see that so often today. But God says to Samuel, he says, here's what I look at. Here's my vision. I look at the heart. What the heart is, our soul is our essence that which will be in eternity with Jesus, our essence. The heart is that center of us that pumps out our um, emotions and our spiritual life through our whole body into the whole world. So it's basically that foundation, that starting point for us. And God says, that's what I look at. I look at the starting point, the birthing point of who you are emotionally and spiritually. That's what I look at. A resume attached to something. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. What they're acknowledging is everything we are, everything as we express out and walk in life, everything starts and comes from the heart. And Jesus, I mean, he's a beautiful, he says, let's talk, that's what we're going to look at. That's what like. He says in, in Ezekiel, he says, I am taking your hearts of stones and giving you new hearts. Because what he's doing is he says, I'm going to take the religious heart, that dead heart, and I'm going to regenerate it and pour life into it and life abundantly. That's the heart that Jesus is looking for and looking at. That's what he weighs. That's the vision he wants us to have. When we look at what is likely and what is unlikely, and it has very little, if anything, to do with the outward. It has everything to do with the heart. And he says, I want you to see as I see. I want you to weigh what I weigh. And we get caught up in the other and I love this portion of the scripture is because it's all about tuning us up, correcting our vision to God's vision. So he does that. Let's look at the replacement. And what I really like about this, I was kind of reading through that text before I go there, is uh, I like how the end of it. So they've got the heart. They've got the lesson from verse 7, right? And he starts passing. Jesse's involved. They're all like, is it him? Is it him? You can just feel him like, no, it's not. We're looking for the heart. Love the kid. Not him. But they're just praying him around and say, man, we've got them all dressed up. They, none of these? Um, no. And what's, Samuel's like, man, I know God told me he was going to be one of Jesse's sons. So he asked this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. That must have been an awkward wait. I kind of, are you hearing the Jeopardy music when you read that? Right? And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. 
So what's happening here is this unlikely person, this youngest son of Jesse's, who, listen, didn't even get invited to this. Didn't even get advice. When they started running through, hey, now Jesse's in on this. Like, who's going to be the next king? This is amazing. We've got an anointing. He never said, well, wait, 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 let's get all the kids here, all the sons, right? Didn't even think of him. He was an afterthought. I was thinking this, and I said this in the first service, but it's a little true in my life. Um, how many of you are youngest kids here? Raise your hand if you're a youngest child. Okay, and there's my daughter here. Okay, here's, here's a sad truth to you youngest kids. I'm... Late, late in life, I stopped being the youngest. Most of my life, I was the youngest. There's yet usually no video or pictorial evidence that you actually existed, <laughs> right? If you look at the oldest child, it's like, holy Toledo, there's every video and things and pictures, and everyone's got tattoos of them on their arms. But the youngest one, like, I'm so far down, there literally, there's zero evidence pictorial that I exist. You can't find a picture of me. Right? Um, and I, my youngest daughter is here from Australia, and I was thinking in this first service, I almost need to apologize, okay? Your sister to the right, all the videos got her, all the pictures of her. We bought one of those camcorders that were like, like a bazooka. Remember those things? Uh, and everything she did, she filmed. Uh, the second one comes, and I don't know what we thought, you know, we'll draw pictures for her. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But the youngest child just ends up in this place, just an afterthought. And here, they're so far from the inheritance. Um, and that, here, this is my, my young son. He's up there. In fact, he's just kind of the working class guy. He's just actually one of the lowest jobs they have. He's up there being a shepherd. Just a blue-collar guy up there. I'm sure he thought, good enough kid, but he's just up there, right? Uh, and so Samuel thought, well, Let's bring him in here. And he comes in. So what the world marked and labeled as unlikely, when he walks in here, David was between 10 and 15 years old. He's just a kid. And he describes this look. And it, what it's describing here is just like, you know what young people look like, like 10, 11-year-olds, right? They're, they're all kind of beautiful and cute, and they've got this fair complexion, right? They're just cute, all of them, right? So comes in, there's just this cute little boy, like, ha how cute. Probably want to reach out and pinch his cheeks. It's little Davy, right? Here he is, right? How cute is this? <laughs> but little Davy, when he walks in, their hearts are tuned, right? They're seeing as God sees what happens. He's the next king of Israel. Hello. This place needs a warrior. It needs a mighty man of valor, right, to conquer all these other kingdoms and lead us spiritually to this God. And here walks a boy, and God says, that's him. And they say, yes, and they anoint him. This unlikely person that the world would not have identified at all and said, that's him. And there's one reason. His heart. His heart. That's what God was looking for. And that's what we learn about David. And it's really cool because what happens is when that heart arrives, God pours out himself through the spirit in him. And something happens powerful. First time, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens here for individual. Now, after Acts 2, we all get that. And so it's a foreshadowing of the relationship we're going to have with King Jesus, right? David gets it, and that spirit is with him from that day forward. Because here's what happens. What God does with the right heart, he pours out his power. People make the mistake of saying, well, let's go get the best, the resume, Right? And then we will hope that will find and fit its way in and work out. God says, no, you got to turn that around. Go find the right heart, and the Spirit of God will pour his equipping in that and do a great work through him. That's what it seems so unlikely for us as we gaze around at all the, quote, unquote, kings around us. And we want that. God says, no, no. It's somebody who will let the king of kings be the king of his heart that I'll do a great work through and in. That's David. It empowers him. So this heart's cool. So, okay, how do we get this heart? Something interesting in 1 Samuel 13, 14, what we learn, I'm just going to read it. The Lord, and this is um, Samuel talking to Saul, and this is when Saul was rejected as a king, when he got put on notice, okay? Samuel says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. 
I'm going to read that again. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be, commanded him, excuse me, to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So it's interesting here. David gets this title, this tag that we all know is a man after God's own heart. And we typically attribute it because it mentioned in Acts as well is looking back at David's life. But you see what happened here? This is before David was anointed king. He says, I'm going to go and find a man after God's own heart. So David had this heart before he was anointed to be king of Israel. And that's powerful. So we can look at this shepherd experience, if you would, and say, what do we know about David? What is this heart? As we say, God, we want that heart in us as well. The first thing we see, it was God-focused. He sought the kingdom of God first. He made God's way of first importance, not his own way. He loved God. He had an intimate relationship with God. As I mentioned, when we, we are in that religious heart realm, uh, God loses that special, that, that love touch, that intimate touch. He's just a good idea, uh, uh, a series of beliefs. Uh, unfortunately, a list of moral codes and do's and don'ts culturally and that's a, versus a lover of our souls and us loving him passionately. But that's what David was. He sought, pursued God with passion. So my question to you as we look at the heart is, do you love Jesus for us? Think about just a second. Because I'm going to guess a lot of you say, I believe in it. But do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Because that's what David did. He's a man after God's own heart. We look at Psalm 78 and 89. Uh, and there the psalmist is talking about David when he was a shepherd and he, and he tells us two qualities he had. So he's a man after God's own heart. We know that. But he says he was a servant. He was a servant. And you serve when you're in a state of being humble. So we have to have a humble heart. That's the heart that God is looking at. And what a humble heart does is it understands who God is, right? And you step under that and submit to it. Say, your ways are better than my ways. And I'm going to love you, God. And then in turn, what happens is as God shifts your heart, you start loving people. And you humble yourself. And you begin to serve them. Because you know what the ultimate goal is. And that is to point them to Jesus Christ. And so David loved people. And the third thing I see here is he says in Psalm, again, I think it's 89, he says, David had a heart of integrity. A heart of integrity, a pure heart he had. And so he was trustworthy. Integrity means I am who I say I am. Okay? And my prayer for all of you as you get to know me as your pastor, uh, that you can come to this home, these are my family here, and you'll see the same man as talks to you right here. Nothing different. You sneak a look in my car when I'm driving down the freeway and someone cuts me off or something like that, right? Um, that you hear and see the same man. See Daniel here, medical examiner. You guys, I told you last time I spoke, I was a chaplain. Well, in the middle of the night, I see this man right here often. And I'm praying, Daniel, because I see a man that loves God sitting before people in tragedy. But I'm hoping he sees the same person that's talking right now at 2 a.m. in someone's house, Right? That is integrity. That's the heart that God wants. And the last thing for this heart, you see, is David had, had a courageous heart. He was a man of courage. It takes a lot of courage to say, I'm going to be with Jesus and stand with Jesus. Because as a culture wages war, 70% of people say, we don't identify with Christians. I don't know what the percentage is, but my experiences in Seattle is there's a large percentage that actually dislike Jesus. And it's going to take courage for me to stand up and say, I am with Jesus, whatever the cost might be. I'm going to defend him because he is of first importance. That's the heart that God needs. And here's an interesting, well, that's some sort of, you know, I don't know, activist mindset, but no, People need people of courage, 
right? We'll stand for Jesus. We'll point to Jesus. Now, use the greatest weapon we've ever been given to fight those battles, and that's love, right? Because that's what changed the world is the love of God through the Son, Jesus, that he imparts to us to love the world. That's the most powerful weapon that we have is love. But I'll take that love and not just sit in this protected room, but I'll get out there and be about it. It takes courage. That's the heart. So how did David get this heart? So if he had it when he's 10, 11 years old, up in the fields being a shepherd, how did he get trained doing that? And there's some things you look at his time as a shepherd that could teach us something, okay? The first thing is the monotony of being up there, of how it trained his heart. For David, the day in and day out grind, what we can tell, he was a man after God's own heart, meaning in that grind it became the little things. What's the big things? It's the little decisions he made. Those little things day in and day out. Because what happens is those little things become big things. Meaning this, every encounter I have, will I give it to God? Will it be for the glory of God? You know, little like, this person made me mad. Am I going to honor Jesus right now and make that little decision? When I'm walking and all of a sudden, you know, something offends me, what heart am I going to let rule? I'm going to say, nope, I'm going to make this little decision. That thing comes across my computer screen. I'm going to make the little decision. It's all about these little decisions because these little decisions, what do they do? They add up. They train the heart. They add up. And at that point, that heart is ready for the bigger things. So it's in the monotony of your daily grind of doing the little things for the Lord Jesus Christ to bring him honor and glory because he adds that up and it trains your heart to be a heart much like David had. The second thing we see for David, he was up there all by himself in his solitude. When no one was watching, he was a man after God's own heart. They say character is who you are when no one's watching. Man, these, you know, I thought I had my phone those phones, right? It's a whole brand new world for our next generations, man. You could be somebody totally different. Who are you when that option to look at that picture comes in? When that web page pops in there? No one's around, boy, you could put on that mode or whatever it is to hide, but you're smart enough. Who are you in that moment? Will you choose Christ? See, that's training the heart. You'll hate this one. Driving down the freeway all by yourself and that person cuts you off. Right? Okay. You don't have to be Christian in that moment. Okay, so you get, no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, have, you know, who are you in that moment? Who are you in that moment? No one's watching. You can yell, feel, think, whatever you want. God's there. Jesus is there. Do you choose Jesus in that moment all by yourself? Alone with your computer. Taxes. I can just say this. Those little things, those little things add up to saying yes to Jesus in that moment. They add up and they train the heart to be who God has you to be. And the last thing I see here, and there's, there's a lot more than that, is an obscurity. Was it interesting that David... When Sammy said, well, any other sons? Yeah, there's another son. Um, you know, he didn't even get his name. We didn't get David's name until late in this scripture. I don't know if you noticed that. He said, it's my youngest son. Didn't even say his name. But what he could have said, right, because we know from scriptures that, yeah, my son up in, there, up in the fields, he kills lions and bears. That's what he does. I mean, this is a 10, 11-year-old boy. I don't kill lions and bears now, and I've got technology of a gun. What do you mean he kills lions and bears? Yeah, his dad didn't even know. So it was an obscurity. He was living for the Lord when it wasn't for a pat in the back. Not for, hey, look at me. Boy, I hope my wife's pleased because I did this. You know, looking like the great Christian. No, an absolute obscurity. He did it for one reason. That's for the Lord Jesus Christ. God for him, us, Jesus. That's why David did it. Because God wanted to, it pleased the Lord, and he was a man after God's own heart. So he says yes, even though the world would never pat him on the back for it. 
we are because David became the greatest king, second only to King Jesus. He's mentioned more times in Scripture than anyone else other than Jesus. This little boy, right? Did God do something with this unlikely, snot-nosed kid? Yeah, because he had a heart that was trained, right? It was trained in the monotony of life. It was trained in solitude all by himself. And when he was doing it for no other reason other than to honor Jesus Christ, God for him, Jesus for us. That's why, okay? That's heart. And God said, that heart, that heart, you think it's unlikely what it all looks like in its appearances and its resume and all these things. And I say, that is likely. And I'm going to pour my spirit in that, and I'm going to use it to change the world. And that's who David is. That's what he does. We're going to watch a video right now of a young man who had to do uh, some heart searching. And God used that heart searching to do an amazing work. So this is a, my good friend Jackson. My name is Jackson Scanlon, and this is how Jesus transformed my heart. When I was a kid, um, my dad and I didn't exactly get along. He had anger problems, and I was the stereotypical middle child, you know, um, always acting out. It got to the point where um, being, like, hit or screamed at or um, being called a mistake was just a normal thing. And, you know, as a kid, when you just get called a mistake out of times, that kind of becomes your internal identity, and that just becomes kind of what you believe about yourself. And then in middle school, when um, my parents got a divorce, all this stuff kind of came out into court, and um, my dad lost visitation rights. Um, and kind of at this time, I started to realize that me and my dad's relationship wasn't just a normal father-son relationship. And then I started to think that if I couldn't trust my own dad, the person whose job was to, you know, raise me and love me and take care of me, if I couldn't even trust him, how could I trust anybody? I began to become angry with the world and with God, and I just didn't let any relationships be more than surface level because I just didn't feel like I could trust anybody. I had to kind of figure out how to be an adult as much as I could. I kind of had to learn how to grow up without a father figure. I barely graduated middle school, and then I opted to do online school just so I didn't have to be around people. Um, and trying to do life alone like that, I just became depressed, and I didn't know if I wanted to live through high school. But God met me in that brokenness, and I, I didn't even honestly realize it at the time, but he put friends in my life that literally gave me a reason to live. It took a long time being friends with them, for me to be able to actually open up and be myself and be honest and truthful with them. But because I met these friends at youth group, that's what kept me at the church. And sticking around in youth group is what led me to meeting Jesus. I never had any doubts if he was real, but I didn't know him. The combination of my newfound faith and my friends is what pulled me out of the darkness that I was in. And through this, I got to see the pieces that God put in play that eventually led to me joining the staff here at North Shore. Everything was great and I was, I was super happy and everything seemed fine, but whenever the topic of forgiveness came up, there was that bitterness I had towards my dad. It was just right back there, that hatred, that anger that I had. And there was just a piece of me that just could not let go of that and I was holding onto that so tightly. I was just to the point of being so done holding on to that anger and that hatred and just that bitterness that I began praying, like, God, how can I move on from this? And so we started, I felt this urge to reach out to him. This person that had hurt me so much as a child and was, wasn't there for my growing up, to reach out to him. And eventually I did, and um, we agreed to get coffee. I ended up getting to the coffee place before him, and I remember seeing him walk in, and I just had this weird feeling for me that this person that I knew was my dad looked completely different than the mental picture I had in my mind. You know, I'd avoided pictures and memories of him for so long that he looked like a completely different person than what I remembered. And I had this realization of how can I be so angry at this person and have so much hatred and bitterness for this person? And I don't even know what they looked like. After close to a decade of having no contact with him, after a little bit of conversation, I realized that he was just a completely different person. And it was the moment that I realized how much he'd changed that all of that anger I just let go. 
and I just let God work in that situation. And I finally was able to let go of all that bitterness that I'd been holding on to for almost a decade. All that hatred and pain that I'd just been holding on to for so long, I was finally able to let go of. Share yourself. Good job, brother. Love you, Jackson. Thank you for sharing your story. I know that wasn't easy, but it's important. He modeled something that David modeled, okay? What David modeled, he understood this heart pursuit and how important it was, as we said in Proverbs 4, 23, everything comes from it. So David had a practice in his life of searching his heart, asking God to search him, search his heart so there's nothing that hinders him from who God wants him to be, has him to be, so it's all open for God to do his good work. Psalm 139, 23, 24, this is David. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I'm going to invite our ministry team up and, and we'll have people up here uh, to, to just to pray with you. There'll be people back there if you'd like to pray back there because it's not about necessarily coming up forward but I think just be bold for Jesus. It's about him because David said of the first importance is getting my heart right with God. In his lowest moment, okay, when he violated God, you all know the story where he committed adultery. He penned a psalm, Psalm 51. And he writes this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew unto me a, a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. And he goes on to say, because I want to be used by you. But I understand it starts with this heart. And I have to be willing to say, God, here's my heart. You know it. And to do business with him. So I'm going to ask us to search your heart. God wants the unlikely in you to, to make it likely in the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes these are just little things, right? Man, it's just these words are an honor in you. I'm going to get it right with you, God. It might be something drastic. God, good. Get it right. It might be something not even talked about in here. It's just like, this is on my heart. Because here's what a family does. A family prays. My prayer, when someone asks about North Shore, that you'll start saying this, what's well, a house of prayer? It's important to God. That we are people, we're family, and we pray. And that's why they're up here. Uh, there's nothing magic about them being here other than they're going to point to Jesus Christ. And there's power in that name. And so, Britt and the team are going to lead us in a song. And my prayer over you, church, is that we would be a church that would take the pursuit of Jesus seriously and we'd give him every corner, every recess of our heart would be his. And we would get away from any religious spirit and say yes to a regenerated heart that can only be done through the Lord Jesus Christ's work. Let me pray over us. Father God, we love you. And we trust you with everything. Father, we want our hearts all to be yours, every aspect of our hearts. So, Father, would you do a good work in us? Would you bring to mind the things that we have to do business with you? And much like David, and he, just, he repented, he says, no, do something different in my heart, God, because I want you. I remember what it was like to be a man after your heart, God, and I want that. So I'm going to do the work, David says. I pray each person here would do the work to say no more and go and take it to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who's a God of love, grace, and mercy, and say, God, here it is. I'm going to lay it at your feet. Do your good work in me. Make me likely by your power. And I just pray you do a good work in our hearts right now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.